we can look at the United States and we can see the way white privilege and male privilege has operated and continues to operate in the outcomes of our laws. You cannot separate these laws from the idea that people want to control women and control their bodies. Male supremacism and misogyny have become a way of forging alliances between all of these anti-democratic illiberal movements. It would be naive of us to not see how this gets reproduced on a broader scale around restricting people's access to a broader array of political rights. Welcome to episode 90 of the Refuse Fascism podcast. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of this show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in this country. Episode 90. Wow. Well, through this show, Refuse Fascism has had the opportunity to engage dialogue and debate with a broad array of writers, scholars, legal experts, and people from different walks of life on the roots, nature, and trajectory of fascism in this country. Through our engagement and networking with people and social movements, we are forging understanding and relationships aimed at preventing the consolidation of fascism. And if we have to fight this fascist threat, we're glad to have you with us. Thank you for listening, spreading, joining the conversation on social media, talking about the pod with your network, sharing your thoughts, ideas, questions, connections, and art with us. Keep it coming. And with a danger presented like never before, we do need you with us more than ever. Thanks to all who have donated I think it would be really beautiful to get 90 donations in celebration of our 90th episode. So please hit the donate button at refusefascism.org and donate $9 if you have it, 90 if you really love us or really hate fascism. Seriously, whatever you can give helps prepare for the struggle ahead. As an independent weekly podcast, we rely solely on your support. So please chip in if you are able. And be sure to let your friends and loved ones know that you support this show and movement. Review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Let people know you support Refuse Fascism by posting on social media, by sharing our e-list, or literally putting it on your forehead with our Refuse Fascism beanie, available at refusefascism.org, and start the conversation. In today's episode, we're sharing two interviews relating to the fascist assault on the right to abortion and the reassertion of violent misogyny that it is a part of. First, you'll hear an interview I did with Soraya Shamali, author of Rage Becomes Her, followed by a recent conversation I had with Chelsea Evan, co-founder and fellow at the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. But first, as we rapidly approach the one-year anniversary of January 6th, Let's talk a little bit about the developments from the January 6th Commission and other related news. Addressing the nation in prime time, the committee vice chair, Liz Cheney, released a trove of new text messages and correspondence 
showing that the idea of just throwing out election results favoring Biden was already circulating amongst senior GOP operatives the day after polls closed, if not earlier, exposing new levels of coordination and determination to overthrow the election in January 6th, and that major pro-Trump figures, including Fox News hosts and his own son, recognized how dangerous, deadly, and clearly pro-Trump the insurrection was as it happened, even as they blatantly lied about it after the fact. As Salon.com writer Amanda Marcotte tweeted, quote, the excuses generated by Fox News for the tech scandal are further proof that they don't lie because they are trying to fool anyone. It's about training the audience to be gaslighters and to stomp out truth as the threat to fascism that it is, end quote. The next day, the House voted almost entirely along party lines to hold Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress for his refusal to cooperate, once more showcasing the near-total commitment of the GOP apparatus to the big lie and the whole fascist agenda. The longest sentence yet for one of the Capitol building invaders was handed down this week, a sentence of five years to a man who brutally beat a law enforcement officer with a fire extinguisher. Some are calling this some kind of justice, a change in course. But it must be said that if a Black man in this country in any circumstance beat a cop like this, we'd be talking about something closer to five life sentences, not five years. It's not just that inequality. It's that these people are receiving leniency from the justice system specifically as a reward for participating in this effort to cement fascist rule. Three retired generals penned an op-ed for the Washington Post this past week, warning that the military must prepare now for a 2024 insurrection. They wrote, quote, As we approach the first anniversary of the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, we, all of us former senior military officials, are increasingly concerned about the aftermath of the 2024 presidential election and the potential for lethal chaos inside our military which would put all Americans at severe risk. In short, we are chilled to our bones at the thought of a coup succeeding next time. End quote. They go on to say that, quote, the potential for a total breakdown of the chain of command along partisan lines from the top of the chain to the squad level is significant should another insurrection occur. The idea of rogue units organizing amongst themselves to support the quote-unquote rightful commander-in-chief cannot be dismissed. Under such a scenario, it is not outlandish to say a military breakdown could lead to civil war, end quote. An unpunished coup attempt becomes a training exercise and a green light for their return to power. Almost a year later, none of the leaders of the deadly fascist coup attempt have been charged with any crimes. Many continue to occupy Congress, and one, Trump, continues to be the GOP's frontrunner for 2024. As many have pointed out correctly, in 1923, Hitler was lightly punished for an attempted coup. He was charged with treason, sentenced to five years in prison, serving only 19 months, and was in power 10 years later. Seriously, let that sink in. But I gotta say, when Hitler's coup attempt failed, at least he got convicted. America hasn't even done that. And a year later, it seems very unlikely that it will. Fascism is breathing down our necks. Now, here's my conversation with Soraya Shamali. I'm really, really angry. We have a situation in which for over 100 days, women in Texas have not been able to access an abortion after six weeks 
and have been in a situation where anyone who aids them in getting an abortion can be hunted down and made to pay a $10,000 bounty. And that's been given the thumbs up by the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that just, I don't know, 13 days ago, indicated its likelihood to not only shred, but entirely gut Roe v. Wade, the right to legal abortion in this country. And I'm really fucking angry. And I'm made even more angry by the fact that I feel like nobody else is angry. And I feel like (laughs) I'm kind of like gaslit in this situation. And so I am really excited to bring to y'all Soraya Shamali. She is an award-winning author and activist who writes and speaks frequently on topics related to gender norms, inclusivity, social justice, free speech, sexualized violence, and technology. She is the former executive director of the Representation Center and director and co-founder of the Women's Media Center Speech Project. She has long been committed to expanding women's civic and political participation. And incredibly relevant to today's episode. She is the author of Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. So welcome, Soraya. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. Let's pull back the lens a little bit away from my personal anger. (laughs) (laughs) One of the key features of fascism as we've been looking at it is this hyper-masculinity. In the same way that men can effortlessly suck up all the air in a room, fascism can suck all the air out of society. And I was wondering, what do you think of this political atmosphere right now? Do you think it is a fair assessment to make that comparison? And secondarily, though, I really am excited from our listeners to hear from you on this. Can you share how your studies on risk perception, what you've been looking at, can help us understand the current situation that we're in? Sure. Those are two big questions. First of all, I share your anger and I share your anger at complacency. There's the anger at the situation we're in and there's the outrage that some of us feel about people's complacency. Because if you have been involved in studying this or involved in being a clinic escort or a doctor, you know how long this has been going on. It's been certainly since Roe gave women access, but in the last 10 or 12 years, there's been a huge power push. And we saw it in state legislatures, which I think if you were a person who was covering state legislatures and you talked about some of the frankly, just egregiously ignorant things people were saying in order to pass anti-woman legislation, there was a lot of dismissing of, of those concerns over the years. I'm not particularly surprised, in other words, by where we are. The signs were very clear, and the, the plan to do this has been very concerted, well-resourced, deliberate, strategic. And talking about anger, I think you cannot overstate the anger that very traditional, conservative, often religious women felt in the wake of Roe and the women's liberation movement and the sort of shattering challenges to traditional gender norms that were happening during the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of anger and that anger reshaped the Republican Party and it made the Republican Party that that we have now. I don't find it that surprising. I also think that it does go hand in hand with a kind of macho fascism that we're seeing around the world. We know that what we're experiencing here is it's happening in lots of other countries. We saw women in Poland go through this. We've seen women in other European countries. Surprisingly, there are South American countries, though, where there's been a liberalization, which is quite hope-inspiring. We have high levels of what I would say are macho-fascistic activity in our country. 
And I think that has everything to do with risk insofar as so much of people's ability to assess risk comes from us. It comes from something called identity protective cognition. There's so many interesting studies on risk and risk perception, and they implicate not the idea that there is kind of an objective risk out there in the world, but rather the idea that our identities, protecting those identities, protecting our status, informs the way we perceive risk or not. I think that what we know from decades now of studies is that in the United States, and and I'm being very specific there because this is not true all over the world, but in the United States, there is a hardcore set of conservative white men who tend to be early adopters of technology, and they don't see the risks inherent in a lot of technologies, anything from the risk of nuclear war and annihilation to the risk posed by free speech ideologies run rampant in social media, to the dangers of oppressing women in these ways. You know, they just don't see those risks. And it's not because they're not smart people, but it is because their cognition kicks in in a way, which is a human thing, that it protects their status. And so changes in the world that might threaten status. And in this case, again, we do have a very diverse population that's very hierarchical and white men have tended to sit at the top of that hierarchy. Changes that threaten that, and I would include abortion rights, aren't so welcome. But abortion is definitely one of those issues that really threatens people's identities. And so they have a particular response to that. And in terms of fascism and authoritarianism, that response is very strong. And I think it's completely inseparable from the relationship that is ever present between authoritarianism and gender role, norms, identity, attitudes, behaviors. Uh, Those go hand in hand. Authoritarians always, always go after women. And, you know, it might change the way they do that, but it always happens. You know, I really appreciated that you were talking about the global perspective. I was thinking about the democracy summit and you had Modi and you had Bolsonaro. You didn't have Ergodon, you didn't have Orban, but you had the leader from Poland. One of the places that I was thinking of as you were talking about the connection between the gender roles and how that is a real big part of that authoritarian push is Hungary. And some of the first steps that they took were along the lines of either gender identity or around what I would deem traditional gender roles Mm -hmm. and rights. And I was wondering, why do you think that that's so central? Well, I think it's control. If you think about Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania, he banned all abortion and contraception, which automatically puts women in the most vulnerable position, right? And so in that case, you really could see what compulsory pregnancy, state-mandated compulsory pregnancy, which is institutionalized violence. If you think of Susan Sontag talking about fascism as institutionalized violence, you don't really get as clear-cut an example as that. So I just think that you cannot separate these laws from the idea that People want to control women and control their bodies and that that has political value to people with power. And frankly, it has political value to men, you know, whether they care to recognize the privileges that come with that or not. I think it's very clearly the case. I just want to make sure that I understand correctly. When you say the power that men have from that, are you talking about the power that 
they gain from the subtle control that they have, even though they aren't the state, you know, an individual man isn't the state. Right. But I mean, if we think about nation states, right, and we think about the structure of nation states, deeply patriarchal, often very deeply misogynistic in in the implementation of laws, almost all have um, male entitlements built into the structure of states and the law. So if you think about the United States, right, we can look at the United States and we can see the way white privilege and male privilege has operated and continues to operate in the outcomes of our laws. And in the case of reproduction, this was something that now Vice President Kamala Harris pointed out very clearly, there are no laws governing male reproduction like this. I mean, I think a lot of men, for example, they just don't think about the way that privileges and entitlements accrue to them because they don't have to think about this. They don't have to. And in fact, even the right to abortion, as feminists are constantly pointing out, benefit men today. Of course. In many, many ways. But, you know, if you think about what happens in the society broadly when women cannot control their own reproduction. We've already been there, done that, seen that. We know it, we see it every day. It impoverishes women. It takes them out of a competitive workforce. It makes it very, very difficult for them to have any form of tenure or concentrated effort in any area they might choose, because in fact, it's incredibly labor intensive and time consuming and physically exhausting to reproduce the species. And so I just think that the fact that men who are surveyed in the United States repeatedly show that they don't think about contraception, that they don't think about terminations of pregnancies, that's an entitlement not to have to think about that. 100%. And so that's what I meant. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And now I'm angry again. <laughs> I wanted to, to return to kind of where I started because I think I think it connects to what we've been talking about already. I stated at the beginning my anger, but I don't think it's just mine alone. I think that there are many people who are looking at women losing one of the most consequential rights for their lives and that it is so close that you can feel it. And they're angry. I know that people are angry. And at least I want to feel like I'm not alone, that there are people that are then angry at people's, I think you said complacency, but it's not always just complacency. I think it's sometimes like a deep sadness and yeah, I think they're exhausted. that accepting that it's going to happen and then going to that sad place because they know what the implications of losing the right to a legal abortion are. I'm angry that I don't see other angry women, that I know that their anger is there, but I don't see them, that the streets weren't filled December 1st with women in at least thousands. That didn't happen, that there aren't like people demanding abortion on demand without apology, Mm -hmm. that that outrage that you could have a Supreme Court justice say, well, what's the big deal? You can just get your child adopted. Right. The lack of outrage over Brett Kavanaugh talking about a conflicting interest between a fetus and a woman. I feel like I'm made to feel like I'm crazy. And I feel like that's not a new thing. Uh The angry woman is a crazy woman. But why don't we see this anger, this visible anger? Well, I mean, first of all, we're a pretty conservative country, right? We're two countries, at least. We're many countries, but we're very conservative. We have the most religious population of any of the dominant countries in the world. And those religions are very authoritarian. You have Catholicism and you have evangelical Protestant religions. And I don't think you can separate 
those faiths, and I grew up Catholic, I went to Catholic school throughout my whole life and through college, you can't separate the ideologies of your faith from your political stance. It's virtually impossible, even though we like to pretend that that's what everyone's doing all the time. And so the inherent authoritarianism of those faiths bleeds into everything, particularly this issue, which we insist on calling a social issue. In our country, we still call abortion a social issue as opposed to a human rights issue, a violation of our human rights, an economic issue, a deliberate oppressive uh, policy that hurts women and their health and well-being across the board. We just keep thinking of it as a choice that women make uh, selfishly, by the way, they make it selfishly. And we put it in that little social box of choice and we walk away. And that's sort of how we dealt with it. And that's a real flaw. That's a real problem. But we are very religious very authoritarian, very conservative. And I think, too, that what happened with the election of Trump was that people who felt comfortable, people who felt like, we're fine, women here are the best, you know, like, I can't even tell you as a writer of the last 12 years, and I was a writer 25 years before that, the sense of American exceptionalism, particularly when it comes to women, is powerful. And I think when Trump was elected, it really, as we know, shocked people. It really shocked them that this man who was so evidently predatory and aggressive and sexist and kind of flaunting it, you know, that that one videotape, it just, I think for people who saw it or were paying attention or heard about it, and I was stunned by how many people did none of those things. Like they'd never heard of it, never seen it, you know, on the right, it just didn't even register for a lot of people. I think people were stunned. And I think these are people who by and large thought that the work of feminist protest was over or wasn't necessary. There's not like a good equivalent to compare like with men, right? There isn't because there's nothing that their bodies do this way. I'm always like, I don't know if their guns got taken, you know, or they had to get a vaccine, the rate, right? That is like- Or they had to get a vasectomy. Okay, yeah. I mean, we have a problem with overpopulation and we've decided as a society that that's by far the cheapest way to stop growing the population. And that's what, you know, China didn't force men to have vasectomies, but it had a a one-child rule. And, you know, it's a full circle between enforcing- abortion the way they did and refusing abortion. It's like there's no difference in the end between it's just the state saying what's going to happen to women and their reproduction. What I find interesting, even in, in our legal framework, is that, again, we never talk about this. This doesn't come up because it's so profoundly embedded in our thinking. The rule, like the, the rule of viability, that sense of there being two separate people and that they have equal rights. That entire framework is based on how men experience reproduction as separate and outside of themselves. And that's not how a person who's pregnant experiences pregnancy at all. We don't even have a language to describe. We don't have an epistemology. We don't have a a theory of reproduction to describe what it means to be both one person and more than one person. You know, one person and maybe eventually two people or three people. And we don't even question the fundamental premise of the notion of separate individual selves that goes into the reasoning of a man like Gorsuch. I really appreciate that breakdown. Like I get all the the demoralization. People have been through so much. Even though people have been through so much, I feel that if we were to enforce vasectomies tomorrow, the outrage would be everywhere. Why is that the case that you don't see that with women? I mean, I think that's just the state of patriarchal 
existence. To me, it's not even that complicated. And the other fact too is, you know, there are a lot of liberal progressive men and just as many completely conservative authoritarian women. I kind of back up away from any sort of essentialism. You know, women don't grow up outside of the culture. We're not born into feminism. The way that, that women experience security and safety and eventually maybe power is virtually always vicarious. It's always vicarious. And so to threaten that relationship that makes those things possible is serious for a lot of people. They're dependent. They don't want to talk about their dependence. And again, I think this comes down to identity. If your identity is built around a certain type of worldview, a certain type of relationship, you're just not going to want to challenge it or upset things because it's scary. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And we see that playing out in many ways beyond abortion, you know, the, the way that people view something like a vaccine, their worldview and their their sense mm-hmm. of control and agency being being tied into that. Yes, that's exactly right. And the vaccine, you know, the thing about a the thing about a vaccine too, of course, is, and this to me comes back to your question about men and vasectomies, but that idea that the skin is being broken, yourself is being penetrated by something. And that that is a threat to the self. It doesn't apply to women the same way. And it doesn't apply to women the same way because we're inherently thought of as penetrable and porous and functional. And abortion, the regulation of abortion is functional, whether you're in China or here. I've never thought of it that way. Well, think about the way uh, transvaginal, whatever, five, six years ago, a lot of us were writing about what essentially comes down to a sort of state-sponsored sexual assault. When you take a 12-inch transvaginal probe and you tell a woman that she has to go through this procedure for no medical reason at all, and if you just walk people through the experience that a woman has, the humiliation, the shame, the anger, the frustration, the discomfort. It's mind-boggling to think men would be subjected to something like that. Like you literally can't compute. Yeah, you can't, you can't imagine that. And and actually this just happened, I saw on Twitter too. This is very interesting. There's been a long-standing conversation about women and the insertion of IUDs for uterine biopsies. And you know, when those things happen, women don't get any kind of anesthesia. At no. all. And of course, for colonoscopies, yeah, for colonoscopies, people do. Yeah. And you got to say, like, like, why one end and not the other? Yeah. Well, well, and we know why, right? Yeah. Like we know it's not even, there's no mystery. I haven't been following that people are talking about that. That's, that's interesting. One of the things that you do in your writing in your book is talking about the positive role of anger. And I like to move towards some hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What do you think that the positive is of women being able to tap in and actually feel and express their anger? Well, I mean, I think we see the positives all the time that women were the vanguard of opposition to Trump from the day that people started to understand. They led protests, mail-ins, political activism, fundraising. That was all anger, all driven by women who channeled their anger into political activity. I mean, I've never joined a feminist movement, and I belong to many, many different types of feminist movements and networks and activism. Anger is always involved, and yet there are places that are filled with enthusiasm and imagination and you have to be able to maintain a positive vision of the future to do any of that work. And the anger is all part of that. 
And and again, we were talking about the rest of the world. I have been watching America slide into this terrible, terrible situation for you know decades, actually. And I am genuinely heartened by what women in the rest of the world are doing. Are I, there I'm, places in particular that that you've been paying attention? Honestly, to? we, we talked about others. Yeah, I mean, we talked about South America. I think that what has been accomplished there in the last year or two, particularly as it pertains to this issue, is quite remarkable. You know, we're talking about colonialism, Catholicism, authoritarianism on the left and right. This is amazing that these women have managed to get these laws changed. And of course, there have been tragedy after tragedy after tragedy along the way, but it's quite a positive sign that this has happened. And again, this is something that will have intergenerational impacts that we won't know, we won't really see for a long time, as will what we're going through right now. Absolutely. I was wondering, as we close out our chat, what do you think we should be doing in this moment. You can speak in terms of cultivating the positives of of our anger, or you could speak to any other aspect that you think is important. But what do you think that people, in particular women who are listening and are concerned right now? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that we need to hold men accountable for participating in this conversation. For example, Susan Collins, she's the focus of a lot of ire because she could have stopped Kavanaugh Kavanaugh, um, from, from being... And I am pissed off at her too. But you know what? She is one woman in a party that functions like a hybrid fascist state. Like if you just looked at the GOP in the United States and you looked at the representation of women, we would rank about 132, 133, right alongside Molly. That's what the GOP is like. So we've got this one woman who's irritating. Yes, got it. Check. Badness. But all these men did this. And I don't know why we're focusing on her. I'm like, okay. I, I mean, I am. I understand. But in fact, they should understand women's human rights. They should be held accountable for upholding the law. They should be the ones, not just her. And I think the same thing stands in life. I mean, we keep expecting women to fight this battle. We simply don't have enough power. We don't have enough institutional power. We definitely don't have enough religious power. We don't have political power. We don't have power at the top levels of universities in the U.S., If you look at these numbers, you know, the higher up those pyramids you go, the fewer and fewer women, the fewer and fewer women of color, you literally cannot find a black woman in that sort of stratospheric space. And so my question really is, what are we going to do when we're talking to men? And those men might be brothers or fathers or spouses or sons or students or peers at work so that they don't just check out anymore. They totally check out. It's like it has nothing to do with them. Have you found any personal success in those conversations, something that you think people should be? You know what? What I have found is that aging is a gift (laughs) and that I don't mind being the person who makes other people uncomfortable anymore. And for the longest time I did, and I don't. And it doesn't mean that I'm cruel or rude. It just means that I'm pretty honest. I say exactly what I mean. I don't give pat answers to questions. I mean, you know, if someone said to me last week, hey, how are you? I'd be like, I am fucking pissed off. That is how I am. Because look at what is happening in the Supreme Court today. And that may make some people back off. But then I think to your point, I would say, and why aren't you? Like, can you explain this to me, please? Mm. (laughs) Which, you know, at least the dinner parties aren't boring. (laughs) 
you know, you can, you can barely see people these days in person, but when yeah. you do, it might as well be kind make of it count. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make it count. If you're going to see people. <laughs> I think that is a perfect place for us to end. <laughs> I want to thank Soraya so much for joining us and sharing your expertise, your time, your perspective with us. And I wanted to know where you would like people to go and find more things from you. We will definitely link in the show notes to your book. But if there's other places, you know what, honestly, yeah, I I think probably for people who use Twitter, Twitter is always a good place. I'm at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. I do have a website, but it's really more just a repository where I keep things. But I always share what I'm writing in Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So that's probably the best. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was delightful to talk to you. As Sarah Taylor, a co-initiator of Reviews Fascism and co-host of the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show recently wrote, quote, already fascist mobs are invading every sphere of public life. They are threatening school board members, public health officials, election workers, and more. And the Republican Party has not only purged itself of anyone who firmly opposed the violent coup attempt by Trump supporters on January 6th, it has been moving aggressively to so thoroughly corrupt the election processes that they will either win regardless of the popular vote or be able to unleash violent mobs to nullify an election they lose. A win for them in decimating abortion rights would accelerate their momentum, end quote. I've been reflecting about how our rage is constantly derailed, domesticated, largely by those we are told are, quote, unquote, really on our side. I've been thinking more about this question and why we don't see more angry women filling the streets. And I think it's because so many have been listening and looking to leaders in the Democratic Party who try to extinguish our anger or those who pretend to exist for women's interests, but bottom line, subordinate them to the needs, interests of the Democratic Party. They tell us to look at the fascist majority Supreme Court and then tell us to vote harder rather than call us to reject the legitimacy of such institutions. They tell us to take a beat and buckle in for a long incremental struggle to reverse laws when we should be listening to the women of Mexico and Argentina and elsewhere where despite tremendous odds stacked against them from overtly aggressive patriarchal governments, they've shown us how to stand up in society's shaking, outpourings of mass fury against abortion restrictions. And when, instead of listening to that voice inside of us that is saying, five alarm fire, we are listening to those who are saying, it's not that serious. Just donate to build transportation networks to the Democratic-controlled states where abortion would still be legal. And it'll be okay. Fuck all of that. Get angry. Get furious, get loud, get uncompromising, get in the streets. With that, now listen to a recent conversation I had with Chelsea Evan, co-founder and fellow of the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. Last month, she wrote an article titled Texas Legislators Don't Just Want to Ban Abortion, published by the Fair Observer. To help us gain a deeper understanding of the assault on abortion rights and what this assault can tell us about the fascist movement's plan for the future, I'm joined by Chelsea Eben. 
Chelsea is an associate professor of politics at Center College, a co-founder and fellow at the Institute of Research on Male Supremacism, and a fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Welcome, Chelsea. So glad to have you with us. Thank you, Sam. I will say I'm an assistant professor. Wish I were an associate, but I am so sorry. Don't no. corrected. I'm I'm so I'm so happy to have it be, you know, bumped up rather than yeah. I'm happy to promote you anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. So I really appreciated an article that you wrote for the Fair Observer around SB8. And one of the things that you wrote in it was, quote, it is clear that SB8 is an assault on the rights of pregnant people that is informed by and reflects the logic of white power and male supremacism. But the law goes further. It is also an assault on the very framework of liberal rights. On one hand, SB8 is a continuation of the anti-democratic turn within the American right. On the other hand, it is a repudiation of liberalism. Taken together, these two aspects of SB8 highlight what the Texas abortion ban can tell us about the radical political project of the American right, end quote. And so I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit more about those two aspects the anti-democratic turn and the repudiation of liberalism that you see embodied in SB8. I'll start with the anti-democratic turn. And I think that SB8, if we look at it just very strictly on the numbers of how the law was passed, we see a legislature that's not representative of the demographics in Texas. It is sort of a pseudo-democratic system whereby a majority of white men are passing legislation that affects constituents whose voices are not accurately reflected. And of course, Texas has also been at the forefront of passing new voting restrictions. So the state legislature is very clear about wanting to constrain the democratic will of Texans. So on one hand, I think we see it there. We also see it as illiberal because it is looking to strip a certain number or certain groups of Texans of fundamental rights, of their constitutional right to sexual privacy and by extension to abortion. When we put these things together, what we see is an assault that will only further undermine democratic representation. The more we constrain people's rights to be autonomous, self-governing subjects, the more we also see constraints on democratic governance. Those people don't have the same access to be sort of autonomous. I think that that is really helpful in terms of seeing people's ability to participate in society fully. Part of making that all possible is being able to decide what happens with your body and therefore how that affects your whole life trajectory. And I think that a lot of people don't understand how central abortion is in women's ability to participate in society, including the political decisions that are made. It affects people who can experience pregnancy at every possible level. It constrains potentially their educational choices, their economic choices. And I really see these assaults on abortion. And, you know, I think they're going to be followed very closely by assaults on access to contraception. We can see the writing on the wall and it's coming. But I see these as attempts to assert control and regulate the choices of people who experience pregnancy across all sectors of their lives. And 
even something as basic as voting. It is very difficult for some folks to get to the polls if they don't have access to childcare or if they are responsible for working in a profession that doesn't give them time off to go vote. And so you you can sort of imagine a future that's not too far off where people who experience pregnancy because they don't have the option of choosing whether or not to be pregnant will by extension not have all of these other options available to them. And very quickly, that will result in a society that is even more unequal than it currently is. And we know that these kinds of abortion bans disproportionately impact women of color, immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants, and poor folks. Those people and those groups who don't have the ability or the access to travel to procure an abortion or to receive guidance on how to self-administer a termination. And so it seems like it would be naive of us to not see how this gets reproduced on a broader scale around restricting people's access to a broader array of political rights. I think that's really essential. I mean, I see restrictions, bans on abortion as really an act of state violence. There, to me, is no world in which abortion is restricted that doesn't do tremendous physical, emotional, and psychic violence to women and those who can become pregnant by turning them into baby-making machines. Your body being hijacked, your safety in particular as it relates to domestic violence, their lives, social standing, (laughs) lifelong relations, and so much more being decided for them. To me, that that is an act of violence. Absolutely. And I think that it quite literally can turn into an act of violence that's accompanied by like life or death repercussions. I had a student this semester who wrote a really fantastically researched paper on Black maternal mortality. And reading through the statistics she had compiled, yeah, we are asking people to undergo an experience that can and very often does result in death. (laughs) It's not hyperbole to say that forcing someone to carry a pregnancy to term is an act of violence and carries with it huge, huge risks. I think that the whole idea when abortion is illegal, women die. It's not just the deaths that are caused by people seeking out termination through illegal means. It is also very often through those who go through the pregnancy and maternal mortality from that. So I think that that's really helpful to help us have the broadness of mind in thinking about this. We talk on Refuse Fascism a lot about this triad, if you will, of misogyny, the most vicious, aggressive, (laughs) violent reassertion of misogyny. This American first chauvinism, the xenophobia, and white supremacy as this triad that is foundational towards this fascist movement and what this movement foments and relies upon. And that said, when we use the word fascism, what we're really getting at in terms of their end game is that if consolidated, there's a total elimination of democratic rights and form of law. So that is what we're talking about here. And I wanted to talk to you about the centrality of this hyper-masculinity that we see. Yes, we see it in all fascist movements, but there's a certain particularity here in the American expression of it, I think, because of its, you talk about this elsewhere, and I know that you've studied it, but the, the role of the religious right 
in shaping the fascist movement in this country. And I was just wondering, you know, if you could share any insight that you have to help us understand why is this masculinity so, so important? This version of masculinity, if you will, really misogyny. Why is that so central as both a cohering mechanism and as a mechanism for this movement to advance and gain momentum? So I think part of what I spend my time doing is working with the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. Uh, so a lot of the conversations I have sort of center around male supremacism. And one of the things that is really evident is that male supremacism, or, or we can call it misogyny, is the sort of center of the Venn diagram between white nationalist, Christian supremacist, other sort of ethno-nationalists who who may or may not self-identify as white supremacist. I would say that the ethno-nationalists also by definition are white supremacist, but there are folks who would quibble with that and want to distinguish between the two. And male supremacism and misogyny have become a way of forging alliances between all of these anti-democratic illiberal movements. Each of them, I would say, comes to misogyny or male supremacy from distinct and overlapping routes. I work mostly on the Christian right, and there we see patriarchal traditionalism being the primary conduit to developing an ideology of male supremacism. The ideas of male supremacism get grounded in a reinterpretation of theology in order to assert male headship, wifely submission, and sort of impose an essentialized set of gender roles. All of this is done in the service, of course, of asserting the supremacy of men over women and sort of forcing women into roles that are obedient, submissive, and subservient to the roles of men. For white nationalists, we often see male supremacism sort of tied into conceptions around the supremacy of the white race, but also the need to control women's reproduction in order to ensure the survival of the quote-unquote white race. And here you get these sort of replacement fears and desires to control the bodies of women who may produce children that don't comport with the vision of of a white ethno state. So I think on both fronts, we see sort of controlling women's bodies as being a means of achieving supremacist goals. Certainly for those who are broadly xenophobic, sort of controlling population is another means by which this overlaps with the white supremacist. Like I find it difficult to distinguish between the white supremacist and other forms of xenophobia, but they're all sort of dancing the same dance. I definitely agree with that. As you were talking, I was thinking about Madison Cawthorn. It's not the first time that he's said something like this on the house floor, I think. But he basically is talking about women as earthly vessels. What the... I'm trying to do an episode on abortion where I don't use the F word. And it's very hard for me. The F word being fuck. Oh, Every yeah. episode I've done on abortion, <laughs> I, I can do whole episodes and other things and then abortion. And I just like F this, F that every, every second. So I'm trying hard, y'all. Yeah, earthly vessels. And then there's Josh Hawley, you know, blaming, I think he blamed liberals. I didn't think he said women, but like for destroying masculinity because 
we define very us them, right? So that's why I'm saying we define it as all masculinity is toxic. And therefore, men don't have courage and assertiveness, and they're driven to porn and video games and a life of idleness. And it just got me. It just, it just got me. Not only are they victims, but they are victims for not being able to be quote unquote courageous and assertive. In what world does this occur? <laughs> it is the sort of paradox of the supremacist who claims the identity of victimhood occurs across all of these different groups. Sociologist Mitch Burbrier identifies it in white supremacists. And my work, I try and extend that frame to thinking about Christian supremacists. All of the sort of male supremacists are fixated on asserting that it is their right and their due in life to be superior. And any attempt to thwart that turns them into victims. In some of the men's rights activists communities that we've looked at there, you, you see this really blatantly spelled out in online discussion boards. Really what they're articulating over and over and over again is that women are conniving and devilish and have captured the state. And so we should reject and refuse the state because it is sort of a tool for women's wily and subversive ways. At the same time as women are inferior, are stupid, are helpless, and need to be dominated. And it's like, I'm sorry, buddy, help me figure out. So women capture the state and use it against you as some sort of bludgeon. And also they are so insipid, vapid, and incompetent that they need to be dominated by you. Like it is that same- It doesn't even meet its own internal logic, I feel like. No, but, but there is a way in which it gets reconciled. It's that we should be superior. We should have control. Any loss of that control and any sort of loss of that status and privilege is an assault on us. Thereby, we are victims. And so reasserting our superiority is just self-defense. And this is something the right does a lot. The right says, oh, no, 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 we're just trying to hold the tide against progressive activism. This is just backlash. I mean, in so many ways, the right actually claims backlash as a defense for its agenda. It's not that the right is trying to impose fascism. The right's just trying to stop the progressives and the liberals from doing too much and getting too crazy. And so that logic, I think, like there is an internal cohesion to it or coherence because it's a way of justifying and obscuring the radicality of what the right itself is doing and these various different rights. Yeah, I mean, I see it as like a collective gaslighting. I like that that way of explaining it. Yeah, <laughs> collective gaslighting. Mainstream media coverage, New York Times and the Washington Post, has been really problematic around the assault on abortion. And it's as if these sort of legacy media outlets learned nothing from four years of the Trump administration, and they're still trying to both sides things. And it's like, no, no, I'm sorry. Really what you are trying to say is that people who experience pregnancy are not entitled to the same rights as those who cannot experience pregnancy. And you are creating two different classes of citizens in your country. And those two different classes, of course, right? Like disproportionately map onto those who are already historically oppressed, marginalized, and underrepresented. So why are we presenting this? It's like, but really, we need to talk about both sides of the abortion debate. And it's like, no, no, we don't. Either we're committed to a liberal framework of 
rights and geodemocratic governance, or we're not. And this is something I was part of a conversation yesterday where someone used the term illiberal democracy and liberal democracy. And then was like, well, maybe it's not just illiberal. Maybe it's like ethnocratic liberalism. And I was like, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. What does that even mean? If we draw these false equivalencies between one thing that wants to uphold people's abilities to participate equally and equitably in society, and another thing that wants to impose hierarchy and authoritarian dictates on some people and not others, we can't compare them as if they are operating in the same political vocabulary, same political worlds. And so I would say that, like, I've been very frustrated reading coverage around abortion. And I think that it is what it is accurately and adequately capturing is that misogyny is so deeply entrenched in our society that it is not what's the expression like a five alarm fire or whatever. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not actually that big of a problem for Texas to subvert the supremacy of the constitution and run roughshod on the rights of people who experience pregnancy. Like we're okay with that by and large, right? Or at least we're willing to debate it, which I find really frustrating and problematic. Uh, It shouldn't be up for debate. A hearty, hearty atheist amen to everything that you said. I think that this is a crisis, but you wouldn't know it. If you opened up any mainstream paper, it would seem like, oh, well, there might be a a lively debate. This might be something that that is generating a lot of controversy. Not, we face a situation where not only is a state able to subvert the constitution, but the Supreme Court says, keep at it. And hold on a second, because we're going to make it a nationwide effort, basically. We're going to green light all the copycat laws that are down the pipeline. And come June, we're ready to take away the right to legal abortion in this country. And then for the main press that people look to, to not even talk about in plain and simple words, what that means is infuriating. In my mind, they are no different from the logic expressed by Kavanaugh, where he talks about, well, there's it's a difficult situation because there's there's the woman and there's the fetus, you know, and we're, we're trying to balance, right? Yeah, we're trying to balance these, are... these two different fuck that. <laughs> yes. Fuck that. It there is... is a pregnant person, a person, not an incubator, a person and a potential for life that is subordinate to that person, that is part of that person's body. There is only one perspective, and that's the perspective of the pregnant person and what they want to do. And I think that until we start calling it out as they are a movement for female enslavement, they are nothing short of that. And all these other arguments, they actually train people to be complicit. They train people to normalize what nobody should be normalizing. I think that though there's a general resistance among people on the whole to recognize just what treacherous waters we're in and just how fragile America's political institutions are now. We are raised on a steady diet of believing that the Supreme Court defends our rights. And it's like, I'm so sorry, there was like a 20 year period of the rights revolution where the court 
did expand and uphold people's rights. And that 20 years should be viewed alongside the over 200 years where the court actually has been a tool of capitalism and a tool of white supremacy and a tool of maintaining the oppression of historically underrepresented and marginalized groups. The court's not going to save us. I feel like we need it on like a neon billboard on like every highway. If anyone wants to get on that, any listeners, the courts won't save us. That would be perfect. <laughs> and it's really, it's hard to wrap our heads around that, I think. It is hard to be staring down this tunnel and not see a light at the end of it. But I think the reality is life is going to get a lot harder for a lot of people. And I think it's also in some ways you were talking about how folks are sort of brainwashed into this. I think that so much of it actually has to do with this longer game plan of the right to change the way in which people are educated. I taught Roe versus Wade this semester. And at a certain point, I was like, looked at my classroom and I was like, hold on. When I talk about the trimester framework, do you all understand what that means? And my students were like, no. I'm like, okay. And I had maybe a a small handful of students who understood that pregnancy lasted 40 weeks and that viability was reached with medical intervention around somewhere between 24 and 26 weeks. But still, like you probably need a fair amount of medical intervention there. But they just had no conception, no idea of this. And I'm like, yeah, this is what abstinence-only education has wrought. This is what the sort of systematic defunding of sex education programs has produced is a generation of young people who can't really conceive of what this loss would mean to their experience because they haven't been educated about what the experience of pregnancy itself is. And as a result, they're much more sort of amenable to ideas around like fetal heartbeats. I mean, I find myself yelling like it's an electromagnetic pulse. That's not a heartbeat. It's just like a little blip. And, <laughs> and it doesn't make sense to them, right? They have no conception of what a fetus looks like as it's developing. And that I think in their minds, it's like a fully formed little person. And we're just waiting to open the door on someone's stomach and out is going to toddle this little creature. And it's like, yeah, no, it's like some cells in the beginning. That's really, it's a blob and it stays a blob for quite a while. And even after it's not a blob, it's still dependent on the pregnant person whose body is carrying it. And therefore that pregnant person's rights supersede Because it's not a person yet. It doesn't have rights. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. As we start to conclude our discussion, I wanted to to circle back something that we were saying. You were talking about when you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel and you don't see hope. And I think that we're faced with a situation that in this way we haven't faced before, the level of danger and threat that we face a fascist movement in this country that already has a trial run behind them and that they have learned from their their missteps a movement of millions, tens of millions of revanchist-fueled followers who are ready to do whatever it takes to bring this male supremacist, white supremacist, if you're not American, you're not good, world to fruition with all the horrors that that entails. That is true. (laughs) All that is true. And if all you see is that and the threat and the danger, then I do think that it, it can bring you to a place of despair, especially if you think that you're going to keep playing by the rules. 
And I think that everyone who cares about the lives and future of people who can become pregnant in this country, and I'll say women especially, because this movement, who they care about is the oppression of women. Those who don't identify as women that become pregnant are subhuman already to them. And that's despicable and disgusting. I think that so long as we continue to believe that we can keep playing by the rules while they set the rules on fire, we are going to lose. Anyone who tells you that you have to buckle in for the long game, which is what the New York Times editorial board was saying was, you know, they had their decades of organizing. We need our decades of organizing. How many bodies are you willing to accept dead? How many lives are you willing to accept foreclosed? while you build up those decades of organizing, because that's the reality of what it will mean. And I think that we need to start breaking out a little bit about hoping and relying on some political proxy to do what's needed. And whatever platform we have, you do tremendous work in academia. Everybody has a role to play in this. And I think that people need to retap into their power. On the flip side, they're seeing our hope. There's also some folks in the women's movement right now that are really making me angry. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to step over that either. You know, I'm primarily angry at the fascists, don't get me wrong. But I'm also angry at those who are telling people fairy tales right now and saying, we have the abortion pill. We're going to be good, y'all. We just got to get more people to know how to use the pill. And we're going to be there for each other. It matters whether abortion is legal. It matters. And the abortion pill is not going to be a good match for a fascist state. You know, I'm all for the abortion pill. Thank you, FDA, for lifting the restrictions and making it easier for people to get their hands on it. So sorry for that ramble. If you have any thoughts, I'd also, you know, we can close out by also hearing about some of the work that you're doing, some of the work that the Institute for Research on Male Supremacists is doing wherever you want to take it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of the things you just said. I I should give a disclaimer and say that my partner says that I'm like a dark rain cloud with a vascular system because I am very pessimistic. I I think that's a beautiful description. (laughs) It's I'm owning it. I'm just like, you know, I I would embrace it. I'm good with it. It works for me. But I think that like so much of what I see is people forecasting the best case scenario being that we have basically two countries, blue states where you have access to a abortion rights and where you can vote uh, and have your vote be counted in a meaningful way and red states where you don't and blue states where you have government that's invested in public health and will impose mass mandates when necessary and red states where there are not. And there's a big part of me that is like, One, how is this your best case scenario and who are you leaving behind? And how is that best case scenario not also a white supremacist fantasy because of the folks who will be left behind and like the folks who won't have access to move to one of these states where they will be protected? So I find it really troubling and really problematic when so-called good intention liberals are like, well, it's going to be okay. We'll just be, you know, in California and Oregon 
and washing. And I'm like, right. And so you want to just forget about all of the immigrants, all of the people of color, all of the poor white folks who are going to be harmed. It is such an elitist fantasy that that can be your best case scenario. Where I do find some hope, and I'm going to sound like such a cheeser, is in my students. And I love teaching. I love my students. Whether I agree or disagree with where they're coming from, I find them to, as a generation, be really thoughtful. And they're sort of like, their rejection of the Trump years has been to want to not reproduce some of the most odious parts of this new new fascist movement. So I do find some hope in my students and in their perception on things and their sort of like deep embrace of intersectionality across the political spectrum. They get that in a way that I think so many folks who are older millennials or Gen Xers just don't and continue to struggle to comprehend. I do think though that we need our eyes wide open when we think about what our options are going forward. The court is not going to save us. It is open season on protesters. And the Rittenhouse verdict basically says like, yeah, you want to roll up to a protest and shoot some folks, be our guest. And we also know it's open season on protesters because of all of the vehicular assaults that have happened. And the Democrats are just sort of watching this happen. Districts are being further gerrymandered in response to the census. And I think that we have this very short window where People do need to turn out and people do need to make a lot of noise and people do need to apply pressure because if there's not uh, congressional legislation that secures the right to vote, if there's not congressional legislation that secures a right to abortion and birth control. Like we need to know where this goes next. I think that it's not just going to be a couple of decades of organizing. It's going to be a couple hundred years of folks trying to dig themselves out of a really, really oppressive and dangerous place. So it's not a very happy forecast, I don't think. But I don't think the door is slammed shut yet. I think there's still opportunity and and time to resist fascism. But I think we need to start calling it what it is. And we need to be aware of what that means. And I think we need to, right, like sort of pivoting to thinking about the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. We need to recognize the ways in which these different ideologies overlap and reinforce one another. And that they are in so many ways co-constitutive and codependent. And that again, right, reinforces the need for inner intersectional organizing. It can't just be a women's issue. It can't just be a Black folks issue. These assaults are going to affect everyone and they are going to affect some people more than others, but we need to recognize that they are co-constitutive. And whether they affect you or not, you should give a shit because you care about other people. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know why that's always what I did. I was like, okay, people are always searching for it. Well, how does it relate back to me? And it's like enough with this individualist toxicity. We got to be there for each other. It's all so myopic. Like white liberal fantasy that you're just going to be safe if you live in New York or California. And it's like, for how long? One, it shouldn't be about if you're safe, right? Right, Because it's completely morally bankrupt. Morally bankrupt. But it's also so, so naive to think, that you're just going to be able to keep living out your groovy life. They're going to protect that little that little section. They're going to let that happen. No way. No way. So it is morally bankrupt and it is painfully naive, I think. 
Well, I want to thank you so much, Chelsea, for joining us and sharing your expertise, your insight. I learned a lot and I know that our listeners are definitely going to as well. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share if people are interested in the work that you're doing, interested in the work that the Institute is doing, what should people do? Where should people go to learn more? Well, for starters, we have an edited volume of essays about male supremacism in the United States coming out in April. So please keep your eyes out for that. It's a really fantastic and strong collection of essays that'll serve as like a general primer, I think, for folks who are new to the idea of male supremacism. Uh, You can go to our website, which is malesupremacism.org. You can always become like a Patreon donor and help support us. Everything we do is volunteer and we pour a lot of our hearts and souls into keeping the Institute going. And so any amount, like a $2 donation is always appreciated. And that money helps us to bring together scholars, activists, and researchers working on issues of male supremacism. So we do a summer school institute for activists and advocates. We do a lot of stuff for academics. And our goal really is to not just bring awareness to male supremacism as an ideology of oppression, but to really find find ways of combating it. We we don't just want to study it for the sake of studying it. We want to study it because we're really, really scared of what happens when this Venn diagram of white supremacists and male supremacists and xenophobic, anti-Semitic, when they come together, what that looks like. And I think, as you've said so eloquently, Sam, right, it looks like fascism and no one wants fascism. Like, let's, let's not go there. <laughs> Let's not go there. Thank you so much, Chelsea. You can find a link to the Institute in the show notes. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun talking with you. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, or lend a scale. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman. Or you can drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org or leave a message by calling 917-426-7582. You can also record a voice message by going to anchor.fm forward slash refuse-fascism and clicking the button there. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. Imagine the difference if millions of people, the only force that can actually stop this fascist onslaught, were guided and inspired by a love for all of humanity to act with creativity, courage, and determination to wrench the future away from these fascists. Imagine what it will take to break through all the delusions, despair, and confusion out there and turn the tide resolutely against the advancing fascist threat. Well, your donation will help us reach all those who critically need this understanding and clarity of purpose. So join us in taking a pledge to the people of the world to refuse to accept a fascist America and give generously this giving season to this cause, to this show. Chip in to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. You can donate by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting that donate button, Venmo refuse-fascism, Cash App refuse-fascism. And if you give $35 or more, you'll receive the 2022 Refuse Fascism Beanie. 
for abortion on demand and without apology stickers, beanies for the whole fam, cute pins with important messages, head over to the Refuse Fascism store. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Goman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode, so be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.